0: This month's Where Did the Road Go is sponsored by six awesome individuals: Billuminati, Alison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Lindsey Trebet, and Michael Fritchie. If you want to become a patron, go to whereditheroadgo.com. Thank all of you for your generous support and enjoy the show.
1: Transmission Start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go. Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries alternative thought and much more we are present on the web at whereditheroadgo.com. now here is your host Soraya
0: Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go, and tonight I have with me Mr. Ronnie Pontiac. How are you doing, Ronnie? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. Uh, and you have this very thick tomb of a book called American Metaphysical Religion: Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World, and it's out on uh, Inner Traditions, which is a great book company. And uh, this is this is a massive volume. Indeed, it is. How long did it take you to put this together?
1: Um, It's a long-term process that started in the 80s when I was working for Manly Palmer Hall. And it didn't start as a book, really. It it began when I was uh, lunching with him in the vault, something that we would do uh, sometimes because I was working on a bibliography of his alchemical collection and that way I could ask him questions and also examine the volumes that I was working on. And I saw this particular tome that was, uh, it was just a big tall leather thing. It said the Platonist on it. And I said, what about that one? And he said, oh yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> why don't you take a look at that? So I pulled it out, and to my shock, what it was was a, a a set of newspaper issues that had been published around the 1880s, around the time of the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, in St. Louis, Missouri, when St. Louis was still a cow town. It was just beginning to industrialize and get smog at that time. And the Platonist had in it translations of Proclus and Plotinus, the Neoplatonists of Plato, of course, and of Aristotle. Many Thomas Taylor translations, the famous translator who was a big influence on poets like William Blake and Shelley, but also on Americans like Ralph Waldo Emerson. And so the, this, this whole thing also included translations of for example, Alephus Levi's Transcendental Magic, done by Abner Doubleday, the guy that supposedly but did not really invent baseball, who'd huh. been a Civil War general during the uh, on the Union side, uh, who supposedly fired uh, the first shot at Fort Sumter on the Union side, and he was somebody who'd been a vice president at the Theosophical Society, and he had had some glancing involvement with the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor and some of these other esoteric organizations that were developing in America at the time and so here was this newspaper that had been published in a, in a cow town in, in the West and it was all this platonic stuff and it just it blew my mind I, I didn't understand how this thing could exist why it existed who was reading this thing, <laughs> right and so I asked um, him about it and he didn't really know much about it there wasn't much that was known about the Platonist at that time and so He knew a little bit about Alexander Wilder, who was a contributing writer and who'd been the person who edited Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled and who'd written some very interesting books himself. He was also a pioneer of what we now call holistic medicine, that was about it and so that started me on this path of trying to find out information it started with just that and it was like pulling on a thread that unraveled into more and more and more incredible discoveries and eventually I found out that just for example Platonism was a huge fad in the United States at that time it was something that just everybody was interested in and there were parties for Plato's birthday there were Plato clubs Huh. where where people would get together on in some of them in frontier towns really and they would they would study Plato together or listen to speeches by people who came from the New England transcendentalist circuit to lecture in the Midwest which back then was basically the west and and Yale's magazine and also big magazines that people read in general carried stories about how Plato was a uh, an early um kind of uh, he almost was was part of the Christian tradition if you will that he he was somebody who contributed wisdom that was influential on the early Christian fathers and Mm, so it was okay to study uh, for Christians to study Platonism but I found much more than that and at first the research was really just a hobby uh, that Tamara and I took on when we were touring we would often stop at used bookstores or university libraries or esoteric bookstores looking for rare volumes that might address some of these mysteries that we were uncovering in American religion and Over a long period of time, we were amazed by what we found. And then we were really, I can only use the word blessed, to to be around when the revolution in academia occurred and esoteric studies, beginning in the 2000s especially, were suddenly considered legit. And so there were incredible amounts of new essays and books and conferences about esotericism in general, but especially... American esotericism and this phrase American metaphysical religion um, was coined as a field of academic study and so that was really an eye-opener as all this new information that had been hidden away in neglected dusty old archives suddenly became available and changed quite a bit of our viewpoint of history especially esoteric history so I had started to write essays. Um, a f- good friend of mine who was a tremendous guitar player, his name was Art Johnson, he played for uh, people like um, um, Willie Bobo and uh, Papa John Creech, and he um, especially uh, toured with some marvelous singers and recorded with Barbara Streisand. And, mm. um, and a great jazz player, Miles Davis complimented his guitar playing and he was also Manley Hall's driver, and he was also somebody who recorded Manley Hall's lectures. So if people are listening to Manley Hall's lectures from especially the 70s and 80s, they were recorded by Art Johnson, and he was uh, facing the end of his life, and he'd been a mentor to Tamara and I, and he had all this work that he didn't finish. He said he had two feet tall stacks of of writing essays and books and all sorts of things poems that he never digitized and he never was able to finish because he became ill and so he really uh he really scared Tamara and I into taking our work more seriously and he told her for example that she should write that book about our experiences with Manly Hall because right. her her point of view and her friendship with the man were so unique and he told me, you've been doing this stuff for years, we've been talking about this stuff, why don't you put it down on paper and let people understand that America is not what they thought it was. And so I, I did begin to do that. COVID worked out great for that, um, especially during the lockdowns, so we really had nothing to do. So we started to write our books and I was surprised by how much help I got from academics. I had been warned by people like myself kind of rogue scholars or amateurs, really, that academia is not very welcoming to yeah, us. But yeah, yeah. I found quite the opposite. I, I got incredible help from academics who were excited about these studies. And what I found was that America, the history of America, is nothing like what we've been taught, that, that esotericism has been here. From the very beginnings, like hundreds of years ago, when the first trappers were arriving here, there were among them people practicing alchemy and astrology with esoteric interests. And that many of the earliest colonies were motivated by people who were very excited about the Rosicrucian ideas that were unleashed by the Rosicrucian manifestos in Europe. And I found that essentially America was a magnet for people who were reinventing spirituality and coming here to find freedom and then having to move further west or north or south because even having moved here they found that their uh, communities were too conformist and were not allowing them to pursue these these spiritual avenues that they were really pioneering and so it was a, a very exciting thing to see this other america and we often talk about There's so many Americas, right? There's the America that we're taught in school and that we're supposed to, we all sort of pretend is the real America. It's a real democracy. It never does anything wrong. It it doesn't hurt other countries. It's, It's dependable and trustworthy to its own people. And then most of us learn, usually in our teenage years, that there's another America, a shadow side, if you will, that is really an empire and that is is unethical and that has done all sorts of heinous things in history, not only to other countries, but to its own citizenry. But then in this book is is documented in a way uh, the other shadow, yet another shadow of America, which is the esoteric side that was left out of the history books. And the influence is so deep that it shows up even in places that we would never expect it. So I'll give you an example. Um, John Winthrop, the elder, was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he was a a through-and-through Puritan pilgrim and somebody who is often held up as being this example of, of how America was founded. Well, his son, John Winthrop the Younger, was something very different. This was a kid who in 1624, when he had just turned 18, went off to Europe looking for Rosicrucians, and he was very disappointed when he didn't meet anybody that that he seemed to think was a real Rosicrucian, so he made the decision, as others have, that he would try to embody Rosicrucian ideals in his own life to the best of his ability. He was a very a very active alchemist. He was uh, an astrologer. He brought to America many of John Dee's books and papers. He was a, a deep student of Dee's work. And in fact, when he moved here to follow his father, he had crates of alchemical equipment and these John Dee manuscripts and books and other occult materials uh, marked with symbol of these monas hieroglyphica which I've often compared to uh, it's like a, a southern Baptist preacher having a kid who puts pentagrams on his luggage <laughs> and and so he found he found his father's world too stifling it was still the Puritan world I mean his father notoriously got lost in the woods and became so frightened that there were devils all around him as the night was coming that he hid in a, an indigenous uh, menstrual hut and uh, one of the local women, indigenous women, came there to use the hut for the purpose it was built for and found this white man cowering in fear of the wilderness and John Winthrop the Younger could not be more different. He he decided to leave uh, Boston and he founded the colony of Connecticut and was the first governor of Connecticut colony and there he tried to live out these Rosicrucian ideals so he was a practicing alchemist there is still a hill they show that used to be called Governor's Hill, where it was said that he would go up there whenever he needed money with a friend, and he would come back with a bag full of these beautifully pure gold rings. And people were thinking that he was mining or producing them through alchemy up there somehow, no one's ever solved the mystery. He was active as an alchemical doctor for the Connecticut Territory and was said to be an important doctor throughout New England, and patients were sent to him from Europe to be treated, and he trained a group of women to be like his nurses and to dispense his medicines to make simple diagnoses of the most common illnesses, and then he had this color-coded packet system so they knew which uh, herbal and alchemical uh, um, medicines to give them. And some of this was influenced by Paracelsus, and a lot of it was his own experimentation. And he was part of a group of people that were called the Intelligencers. And they were mm-hmm. like the, the uh, Internet hub in a sense of their day, because they all communicated with each other. They were all experimenting with the early beginnings of science. They they were all people who were eager for knowledge. And so if somebody came up with an important discovery in America, it would be known around the world fairly quickly because all the intelligencers would be writing to each other about it. And he tried to bring many of these intelligencers to America to begin what was called by Comenius, who was somebody also influenced by the Rosicrucians who became a huge influence on educational theory and we still uh, apply some of his theory, not enough of it unfortunately to this day. But he wanted to create what Comenius called the College of Light, which was to be all the most brilliant minds brought to America to practice freely here without fear of, of persecution or prosecution. And it didn't work because at the time, the wars broke out with indigenous tribes and people who were uh, running experiments back home didn't think it sounded like a great idea to come to America and risk being massacred right. or, or having your houses or labs burned down. But it was still an inspiration to what ultimately became the Royal Society, which uh, he John Winthrop the Younger was a very early member of. and. To, to really give you an idea of just how different all of this is from um, how we're taught. So let's consider Cotton Mather, one of the most famous of the Puritans, mm-hmm. somebody who was involved in the Salem witch trials, and we think of as being a super conservative Puritan Christian. But when he eulogized his friend, John Winthrop the Younger, he referred to him as Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes. And whether you take Hermes to be the Greek uh, Hermes Trismegistus, the father of the Hermetica, uh, sort of Egyptian-y, but, uh, but also Greek, and or you take it to be the Greek god Hermes, this is a pagan idea, and he's essentially saying, my friend over there was, you know, the wisest pagan Christian. <laughs> we don't think of pilgrims that way, you know, no. and, and but here was one. There's also another guy uh, who arrived in America the same year that, that John Winthrop the Younger was going to look for Rosicrucians in Europe in 1624. This guy's name was Thomas Morton, and I call him the, pa- he's been called not just by me, but I like to call him the pagan pilgrim, and he was a, a cavalier. Um, the cavaliers were the other side of the, the English Civil War, the Puritans uh, and Cromwell were the ones who had this very strict idea of Christianity. You weren't supposed to laugh too much. You weren't supposed to run. You had to you could walk. You could walk a little quickly, but not too quickly. And all these rules. And the Cavaliers were the opposite. Huh. They were the body Englishmen. They loved Shakespeare. They loved what they called wenching. They wore these oversized cod pieces and notoriously got drunk all the time. They had long hair and they would wear kind of pointy little beards and stuff. And they these two sides really fought out the English Civil War, and they they came here as well. And so he was sent, Tom Morton was sent here by the Cavaliers to be competition to the Puritans because... They didn't want the Puritans to gain all the wealth of the New World. And Tom Morton at that time was almost 50 years old when he crossed the Atlantic, which in itself is kind of amazing. And he started a trading post, which he called Marymont. And Marymont was a pun. It it did mean the Mountain of Mary, but it also meant a merry mount, as in wenching. And it was also a pun on a Latin word for the genitalia. He did a lot of stuff like that. He was the first guy to write a fart joke, to publish a fart joke in America. <laughs> he was the first guy in America to have a party closed down for being too wild. He was the first guy in America to have his place foreclosed upon by a corporation because the Pilgrims were a corporation, and they went after him using legal means trying to eliminate him. Huh. And The reason they did was because his his settlement, his trading post, was so different from the Pilgrim one. The pilgrims as we've seen lived in fear of the wilderness and they felt that this was Satan's land and they were surrounded by demons and that the indigenous people were demon possessed. On the other hand, Tom Morton was fascinated by indigenous culture. He wrote about their their how they dreamed, what kinds of dreams they had, what their spiritual beliefs were. He he mapped out springs in the area and what the indigenous locals said about the springs. And some of them were good for dreaming. Some of them had healing qualities. Some of them would help you to sleep better. And mm. he thought that was these gifts of nature were really a wonderful thing. And his trading post didn't even have a wall around it. Everyone was welcome, and he was quite popular. So he decided to have a May Day celebration like they did back home in England. And he felled this huge yellow pine, and they stripped it of its bark, and they put ribbons on it. And he wrote a body poem, and he invited everybody to come to this May Day party. All the tribes, the outlaws, the pirates, the traitors, even the pilgrims who didn't show up. Mm -hmm. And they had this great party. The pilgrims said it was debauched and lecherous and all kinds of horrible fornications were going on, but it, that wasn't the case at all. In fact, Tom Morton said that he found that the indigenous women, these were mostly Algonquin and, and the, the tribes of, of New England, were were more moral than the English girls back home. And that in fact the party had been rather wholesome. There had been some drinking, but everybody had, had been polite to everybody. and. There'd been this amazing uh, feeling amongst the people of a unity amid the diversity. Huh. So to me, that's there's an America right there, the America that we all want, the yeah, America that we yeah. all fall in love with, the unity within the diversity, the appreciation of the differences. And, and yet, the, the mutual respect, right? Yeah, but yet and the pure
0: puritans are the ones that seem to have won that influence over
1: us very much so because what happened was they decided that one thing that went wrong was that tom was selling guns to the tribes that had been decimated by disease to help them protect themselves from other tribes who were taking predatory actions against them trying to enslave them or at least take their lands And so the guns, according to the Pilgrims, were sold in order to fight the Pilgrims. And they had these paranoid visions that someday Tom was going to raise up an army of indigenous people and trappers and pirates, and he was going to wipe out the Pilgrims, which was not his intent at all. But they thought that's what he was trying to do. So they arrested him several times. They treated him horribly. They practically starved him to death. They marooned him at one point. And there's a story he tells that's very poignant. During the winter, he tried to help them. He, he tried to teach them, for example, to use lime in their, uh, in their building materials because their, their buildings were just melting away in the heavy rain. But they wouldn't listen to him because they didn't trust him. And they also were starving to death, as we know. And he offered to go get them food. He said, the the woods are full of food. Let me go out hunting. And I swear to you, I will come back with food for you. And I will again submit myself to your authority. Well, they Mm. were so desperate. They made him swear and they let him go. And he did it. He went hunting. He brought back Food Not enough for everybody because he couldn't carry enough, but he offered to go out again, and they distributed the food that he brought only to the wealthiest and most powerful pilgrims, and the poor didn't have any. And when he offered to go out hunting for the poor, they refused to allow it and let the poor suffer instead, which horrified him. Another difference was that the pilgrims were already kind of flirting with enslaving people mm. um, that would use indentured servitude and also punish people by sending them to work on the earliest of the tobacco plantations, the very earliest cultivation. And Tom Morton was so against that that he endangered himself and his community by, by trying to help people who were condemned to escape because he knew it was a death sentence. And of course, we know that later the pilgrims would accept the idea of being one of the triangles, one of the angles of that horrible triangle that brought so many people here against their will. Yeah, and this was something that he was he was very much against. So uh, ultimately, he lost, and and there was no sign left. They actually burned down Marymount, and it's it's a funny story in a tragic way because the local tribes knew that this was going to be a very harsh winter from the signs that they saw all around them, and the pilgrims uh, almost forced them to attend the burning of Marymount as a lesson but they stood there laughing while it burned because they thought the pilgrims were so stupid for building, uh, for burning shelter right before a severe winter.
0: Right, right.
1: And so, yeah, the pilgrims won entirely and then they, their ideas about, uh, society and, and about purity and about only one way is right really had dominated our culture. And the truth is though that people like Tom Morton, people like, uh, John Winthrop the Younger who also fought by the way for the Narangaset tribe and uh, protected them from the Mohegans at a time when the Mohegans were trying to enslave them and who actually fought with his own father's people and government to regain the land and the names of these people because even their names were taken from them uh, and he was protecting the innocent and that, that's how he saw it and this was a Rosicrucian ideal. So. I could tell you stories from every century of America, way before America even became America, and then after, in which there are these almost unknown but tremendously influential examples of esoteric influence.
0: And and, and for people who don't know, wenching is kind of exactly what it sounds like.
1: Yeah, well, wenches were were ladies who were willing, and so if you were if you gone out wenching, you were you were doing things with willing ladies.
0: <laughs> um. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, you know, and of course you have now the, the uh, religious right in this country trying to sell it like this country was founded by Christians on Christian values that are not even necessarily, you know, Christian values to begin with. Um, so they've, and they've gotten so many people to believe that.
1: Yes. Well, it's, it's something that was created over a period of, of generations and i don't think it was it was part of it was certainly deliberate i mean decisions were made by by historians and by the people who pay them about what's important so in religious studies for most of american history the idea of studying anything except the great institutions that influenced civilization was considered a waste of time and money and even in mid-century mid-20th century america the idea of studying Pentecostals was considered radical because they weren't a big enough institutionalized religion to deserve uh, the respect of historians Hmm. and to write about all the myriad strange hybrids that grew up throughout America was, was considered nothing short of just collecting together useless superstitions that no one really cared about. And there was a few revolutions that occurred. It really starts, you see, you see signs of it in the 60s and then in the 80s, uh, a historian, really a literary historian named Harold Bloom published a book called The American Religion in which he suggested that Christianity has never been the American religion and that in fact the American religion is something closer to Gnosticism or to Persian religion. And he called it American Orphism. And his name for the the New Age movement of the 1980s was California Orphism. And Orphism was uh, related to the Orphic mystery, supposedly founded by Orpheus, and was an important influence on ancient Greek culture. And is, in fact, a fascinating influence on Western countercultures. Tamara and I wrote a book about it that's coming out in August, where we have new translations of the Orphic hymns we also survey the history of just how really almost every uh, underground counterculture that happened in the history of the West, from opera to to poetry to I mean just about anything you can think of, was had Orpheus somewhere in there, some some influence from Orpheus. Very interesting, huh. but the uh, so in fact then historians only recently began to realize that it was useful to study these things and that there was important influence not only that but that these were very similar things they weren't all separate like in the past people looked at and said well you know we had some religions that came in with the enslaved people that were forced to come here and we had religions that came from Germany that were Rosicrucian pietist religions and all these things and many, many others from all around the world that, that, that wound up in America. There were Kabbalists traveling through America very early in the history of the country, just wandering teachers who were curious about the new world and who, when they met people, who had the intelligence and the curiosity would teach them and one of the earliest presidents of Yale University uh, when it was still a college was someone who said that Kabbalah should be taught at every college in America Ah. and there was alchemical laboratories at Harvard and at Yale and so there was a, a big powerful esoteric influence and it was just written out of history and now especially after the publication of a book by Catherine Albany, it's a brilliant book that Yale published in the 2000s that was called A Republic of Mind and Reason. She defines what American metaphysical religion is, what are the characteristics that are in common amongst those who practice things that can be described as being under this umbrella term, and it's still argued whether there is such a thing. Uh, There are a number of academics who feel that it's just a convenient term for a bunch of unrelated things. Mm. And there are others who wonder if it may be a religion that's forming in America, and that eventually it may turn out to be the dominant American religion. And from my point of view, when you see all the practitioners of all the various forms of alternative spirituality in America, and how much the practices actually overlap. Yeah. We may be using different oracles. We may be using different uh, ancient deities or uh, different forms of meditative practice, but there are so many similarities of approach and and in the way that people dip in and out of these beliefs and draw from them what they find helpful and inspiring for themselves, which again, in the, in the mid-20th century caused a lot of anxiety among academics who called it bricolage meaning it was it was just people putting things together that didn't belong together out of convenience and that really wasn't religion and when they were going to face the big things that happen in life that, that cause us anguish that they would really find out that they had no religion because only institutionalized religion could provide that kind of uh, spiritual comfort in the face of of the tragedies of life and they, they considered it a form of sort of isolationism that If too many people invented their own religion by picking out pieces of whatever they liked from whatever they happened to come across, well, then we wouldn't have anything that unites Americans. But since then, we've seen that that's not the case. We've seen that that there is a community, that there are people who are finding solace during very difficult times, that they are creating hybrid religions, if you will. And I think that they've strongly impacted Christianity, for example, which I, I argue in the book, in some ways, resembles Christian, uh, sorry, American metaphysical religion more than it resembles Christianity because traditional Christianity was about suffering and about embracing poverty and, and avoiding violence and the idea that this world is a snare, that a rich person can't get into heaven. Uh, right. Uh, very different. And, and Christianity in America, for the most part, I mean, all monotheism in America has to some degree been rewritten into this idea that if you're in good with God, if you're practicing religion the way you should be, then you should be prosperous. You should be happy. You should even have a great sex life. That—that That is not traditional Christianity. right?
0: But, but it seems like that stuff was there at some point, and it's just been slowly removed over the centuries.
1: Yes, absolutely. It was there among the Gnostics. It was there among the ancient Greeks and Romans, it was there among the ancient Egyptians, it was there in in China and Japan and India in the earliest days. All of these ideas uh, had their place. But in, it seems to be the case in history that when we get consolidation of power, uh, political power, there's a correspondent col- a consolidation of religious power. And if you look at, to go back for a moment to the Rosicrucians and the manifestos, If you look at what they were up against in that, in the early 1600s, late 1500s, they, They have the Habsburgs are running. They basically have turned the Holy Roman Empire into an inherited uh, royal uh, position, and they act as the military arm of the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, through the confessional, was operating one of the greatest surveillance states in history. All the information that went into that confessional was ultimately available to the Pope if it was important to the Church. Yeah, and so this was. It was a smothering world in which you you had to confess and you you had to obey the priests and you had to obey the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. And all of a sudden, these Rosicrucian upstarts, who remind me of Beats and hippies, really uh, come up with this, these crazy manifestos, which are combinations of religion and alchemy, and uh, but also satire and and literature and and the influence of English theatrical drama, which was touring around uh, in Europe at that time, and and it had these radical ideas about let's get rid of the the emperor, let's get rid of the pope, let's. Uh, hold up knowledge. Many of these people were great fans of Giordano Bruno, who had been burned by the church for his beliefs right. and for his, his interest in science, really. So this was revolutionary. And when the manifestos came out, I believe that, that the impact was something like when Ginsburg released Howell. It was, there, was, there was a generation of people who were interested in the writings of Agrippa and Ficino. They were interested in natural philosophy and magic and Paracelsus, but they all thought they were kind of by themselves that they were fringe and that they of course they had to hide these beliefs because it was dangerous to be accused of having them and when the manifestos came out they suddenly realized there are other people like me there are other people who are reading what i'm reading and who see the world the way that i see it and it was it was powerful. On the one hand, it created a panic in, in Paris, some probably a hoaxer put up a poster saying the Rosicrucians are now in Paris, and if you want to be one and you're properly qualified, you don't have to reach out to contact us. We'll just find you. Yeah. And this caused a panic that the Rosicrucians were the devil's Jesuits. And they had come to Paris in order to, to wreak chaos and havoc uh, in Europe. And and there were other people writing books and pamphlets saying I should be a Rosicrucian, you guys should You guys should let me join, because I'm the perfect person to be a Rosicrucian, which completely missed the point. Because the point of the manifesto really was that each of us has to create the universal reformation, beginning with our own corner of the universe. If we can create a reformation in our own lives, and our own communities, then if everybody's doing that, then there can be a new world, and we can have a universal reformation. It really wasn't about becoming a member of an organization of initiates who were wielding elitist power power or a bunch of uh, Jesuits scheming uh, not the devil's Jesuits scheming to to destroy uh, order in Europe. It was young uh, intellectuals who were high on the ideas of people like Bruno and Comenius and Agrippa and uh, Boetius and, and they they wanted a new world. They they wanted something that much more resembles our world, even down to their description of what they called the invisible college, a college yeah. on wheels that could be anywhere at any time. Basically, the internet. All. Yeah. knowledge at your fingertips. So a lot of those ideas were very powerful in the early years of America. And and there were people who were strongly influenced by the Rosicrucian ideals who were the first ones to, to help begin the colonization of America.
0: Now, I was kind of under the impression Ros- Rosicruci- Rosicrucianism... Kind of was like just invented uh, not seriously, and then it kind of took on a life of its own. was that am I wrong in that?
1: I think you're right. It, that's a relatively new idea the The original ideas, people like Terence McKenna were very influenced by a wonderful scholar named Francis Yates. but one of her colleagues once said about her that she she squared every circle, and she certainly was somebody that was speculating a lot and, and perhaps seeing connections where they weren't. So one of the classic examples is when talking about Rosicrucians, the names Robert Flood and Michael Meyer often come up. Both of them were physicians with great interest in alchemy and astrology and, and the metaphysical in general, one German and the other English. And the idea was that these guys were friends because their books were published by the same person. But once academia got involved in this and really started to dig up, and things in the archives, what they found was that they didn't appear to have known each other at all. And in fact, the only reference that was ever made uh, in any public way was a letter that Michael Meyer wrote to somebody else about Robert Flood, in which he said some very negative things about him that were hardly what one initiate would say about another. Mm. And so the idea that these were these elevated people who uh, had some sort of spiritual wisdom beyond, they were like invisible masters or something, and they had created these manifestos to change the world and ultimately to to bring about the birth of America and all that. I don't think that that's as romantic and beautiful a tale as it is and as popular as it has been among later Rosicrucian groups like Amor and uh, other groups that flourished in America and still do. It, it really doesn't seem to be the case. The case seems to be that we have here... Um, college students, influenced by radical professors. uh, The main author, possibly, of all the manifestos, but certainly was involved in them, Johan Valentin Andre was a kid who, even as a child, had been writing utopias as well as satires. And so uh, my feeling has always been, since I I encountered this new research, that that what we're dealing with here is really just students with this... I think they were also... um, they were very excited about the idea. You, you know, part of what caused the whole Rosicrucian fervor was there were some celestial events that occurred. There was a supernova, there was a series of comets, and these were taken by different parts of society to mean different things. So for the church, these were omens that the Reformation would be crushed and that the Catholics would regain control over all of Europe. But for the Protestants, the Lutherans in particular, this was a sign that the Pope was going to uh, die or be, be eliminated in some way and that the, the power of the Catholic Church would be broken. So everybody was filled with prophecies and these ideas of imminent massive change. Yeah. The irony being that the massive change that was coming was the Thirty Years' War, one of the most horrible, bloody conflicts that ever happened between Protestants and Catholics. But in the days just before it happened, there was, there was this moment where first with the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, who was somebody who really didn't have much uh, love for the Catholic Church and who moved the capital of the Holy Roman Empire to Bohemia to get away from the influence of the Church and of his own family, and who was somebody who was really into the esoteric and really into art. Uh, for example, he helped to uh, preserve the, the art of Bosch by collecting it. And, and he had alchemists living in his castle. And his, one of his favorite things was to go down into the room where the alchemists were working and see what their progress was and to make suggestions. But he also loved to have painters painting in his house. And he, uh, he loved to have mistresses. And he was famous, for his again, for his bodiness. And they thought, these, these Rosicrucian, uh, pioneers, that he might be Plato's philosopher king. That if they could just convince him to, if you want to use the term, come out of the closet about being an esotericist. And if he united all the esotericists in Europe, that they could overcome the power of the Church. But Rudolf really didn't have any desire to do that at all. He wanted to be left alone uh, for the most part. He wanted to preserve peace, and he certainly didn't want to provoke conflict with the Pope. Mm. Uh, he had enough trouble with the Pope because he was so distant and, and unreliable. But then, when he was he was eventually deposed by someone who was much more loyal to the Pope, his brother, and. Bohemia was very unhappy with his brother who immediately started to take away all the religious freedom that they had been given by Rudolph. Rudolph allowed the Jews to practice freely, he allowed Catholics and Protestants to practice freely and in his Bohemia, they all lived together uh, very peacefully. But once that changed, all of a sudden they were they were once again prosecuting Jews and they were prosecuting Protestants and giving more power to Catholics and taking land away from the esoterically inclined nobility. And they got very angry. And in a famous incident, they they took all the uh, the officials of the emperor, the new emperor, and they threw them out a window into a into a garbage heap and told them never come back. And then they. They wow. invited, yeah, and then they invited this young prince, uh, Prince Frederick of the Palatine, and he was a very unfortunate guy. He he had just married Princess Elizabeth, the daughter of King James of England, and both courts, the court of James and the court of Frederick, were heavy into esotericism, and they they had, for example, moving statues that were based on the designs of Vitruvius and. They had, uh, all sorts of interests in, in the early sciences and were fascinated by, by paganism through the lens of, of Marsilio Ficino, who some call the father of the Renaissance, who was writing in the 1400s and translating Plato and Aristotle and the Hermetic writings, uh, for, it, for that generation. And so this kind of of influence, uh, you know, led Bohemia to say, well, we want you to be our king to Frederick. And to be the king of Bohemia was kind of a step to becoming the emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor. Hmm. And unfortunately for Frederick, he thought that this was a calling from God and that he should come to Bohemia and, and save these people. And instantly, this, this was seen as treason, and armies were sent out by the Spanish and by the Austrians. And in the very first battle at White Mountain, Frederick was horribly defeated, crushing the hopes of all the esotericists. And But during the brief time between his wedding, which featured plays that Shakespeare wrote for the wedding, like Midsummer Night's Dream, the, there was this this feeling of, like, feverish anticipation that this, this guy, Frederick, was going to be this, this esoteric leader who was going to take over the Holy Roman Empire in the name of Protestantism and Rosicrucianism really and create this new scientifically friendly Europe that was going to be so advanced. And yet ironically many of these people, the reason that they wanted all of this information and knowledge And the reason that they were so optimistic about it, about being able to have all of that knowledge, being able to discover the secrets of nature and do wonderful things, was because they expected the end of the world at any moment. Mm. And they believed that before the world ended... All human beings would regain the knowledge that was lost when Adam was sent out of paradise. Okay. So weird, you know, I mean, so here they are fighting for our modern world, really, for the kind of freedoms that many of us take for granted and for the kind of science that many of us take for granted. And yet it was motivated by this desire to hasten the end of the world.
0: Which you're, which you're still seeing with some certain fundamentalist sects today of Christianity, but in in the let's bring about Armageddon sort of way, yes, which is very much so, really frightening when you're, yeah. you're literally trying to end the world to to create the second coming.
1: Yes, and of course, look at all the damage that has been done because of that, because yeah. of the idea that you should use up all the natural resources because they're there to be used up before the end. Yeah
0: um, how would how would you define the difference between say spiritualism and a religion? Mm.
1: Well of course a strict definition of spiritualism is uh is necromancy to the christians right Right um Spiritualism is is conversation with disincarnate entities and and this has been a fascination in America from the very earliest days of course the indigenous cultures and the tribes have to say I mean we use the word indigenous cultures it's so it's so inadequate because there were there was like a thousand different languages spoken yeah so many different beliefs so many different cultures and yet amongst them the, the nearness of the ancestors was a fairly common belief and the fact that the right. ancestors were going to be there to help you along and that they they were caring for you and waiting for you on the other side and but it was also brought from Europe so for example the early Quakers and Shakers who came from England to America Practiced forms of spiritualism. And one story is told that's very early of a shaker community where some young shaker women were out walking in the woods and they suddenly heard what they called heavenly or angelic music and they fell into a trance and were carried to their beds and there they prophesied and they were called sleeping prophets, which is the same thing that people called Edgar Cayce a long time later. And, and then the Quakers were really into it. Like, not only were they trying to communicate, but there were cases, especially in England, where they tried to dig up dead people and revive them because that's in the Bible and we're supposed to be able to do that. Right. So those kinds of experiments uh, began early. Now, how does it differ? It's interesting because spiritualism is... I think uh, responds to something that that Emerson said that was super controversial when he said it, when he first said it, which was why should we have to rely on the religions of our ancestors? Why can't we have our own direct revelation, mm-hmm. our own direct? experience of God. And that was radical. I mean, for the generation that was alive when he published that, that was in control, they considered him to be the worst kind of radical. And he was <laughs> uh, criticized and, and accused. And, and But then the next generation, they loved him and they loved that idea. And spiritualism, to me, it really almost crystallizes that concept because rather than having a book that tells you the way things are, having a priest or or a minister who's the one who stands between you and God to a certain degree and tells you what's right and wrong and tells you what is allowable in terms of behavior in your in your culture. You are now getting women in particular who had no power and through spiritualism they gained great power and They were no longer listening to authority that had been passed down over the generations. They were now going out for themselves and reporting back what they were told by discarnate spirits was the truth about life, and it's, it was must have been amazing because you have three things going on at once here. You have women who are uh, struggling for some kind of power, and the the irony of the idea that that America was all about equality and women couldn't vote and they had, n- had no control over marriage or divorce and yeah. no ability to to own property. And I mean, it wasn't until the seventies that a woman could have a checking account in America yeah, without being Co signed by her husband. Insane. Her father. And so at the same time, we had the effort to do something about slavery in America, the the abolitionists. And many of the early feminists were also abolitionists. And many of the early spiritualists were both abolitionists and feminists. And they were trying to rid the country in a sense of what they saw as European Christianity, a, a kind of spiritual sickness. And so amazing to so many examples of women who were like Victoria Woodhull, who was, had an abusive father who realized that she and her sister had some intuitive skills and dragged them out on the road to help him sell snake oil and to do sort of fake readings and possibly prostituted them when they were children. Oh. And then suddenly taking spirituality or through spiritualism and communication with the other side very seriously and producing results that were stunning and creating healing for people and eventually even impressed the great robber barons of the era and they were bankrolled Victoria and her sister were bankrolled to have the first brokerage stock brokerage in America run by females and Victoria declared herself as a presidential candidate at one point and and said that Frederick Douglas was her running mate even though she never asked his permission to say so <laughs> but it was still this radical idea that a woman with a was running for president with a black man running for vice president and so that she was able to address Congress at one point, and she gave this very eloquent speech that impressed many people, and she claimed that the reason it was so good was because she had channeled the great Athenian orator Demosthenes. Huh. Weird stuff. Now, she winds up being hated by the feminists, because she, she wound up being involved in scandals because she had no. an ex-husband and a husband and, I think, a boyfriend or something all living with her at the same time. She was essentially taking care of the men in her life. Yeah. But this was seen as some kind of uh, incredible uh, immorality, and she was torn apart in the papers. She eventually wound up fleeing to England, where she married a lord and and was known as this this really uh, charitable, uh, noble woman. Nobody had any idea of, of her notorious past. But So spiritualism allowed her and many other women and men to reinvent themselves and to reinvent religion in this very direct way so for example there was a book published called antiquity unveiled and it's it's kind of a it's such a funny book because everybody's in it like Caesar and all the great popes and just big figures from from history and they're all saying the same thing using pretty much the same language I might add uh, they're all saying that Christianity is full of it <laughs> and it's just wrong that they that they don't you know. Now even the best part is seeing like the popes and other prominent Christians who are quoted in this book as saying, "I was wrong. I was wrong about this Christian stuff." <laughs> so that's so daring, you know. Such such a and and let's let's also point out to be fair, how much fraud there was around all of this too, right? Oh, sure. So especially later, I mean, the mafia got involved in spiritualism because it was so lucrative. And it was so easy to to look at uh, the the obituaries in your local town and, and look for families that had money that had lost somebody. This is something that goes all the way back to the Orphic priests who Plato accused of doing the same thing of coming into a town and saying, hey, any rich people die recently? Wow. And then you go over to the house and you say, hey, you know, uh, unless your, your dead relative received the right spells and the right prayers, they're not doing well on the other side. But for a nominal fee, I can take care of this for you. And <laughs> that was way back in ancient Greece. And, and it was happening in America with spiritualism too, where spiritualists were caught sharing files that they had on families. Mm. Or on particular clients. So there was always that kind of fraudulent element, but there were also incredible examples throughout the history of spiritualism of something that was going on. Uh, inexplicable knowledge, inexplicable events, and, and, an interesting thing about it is the evolution of spiritualism which gives the appearance of something uh, almost engineered from the other side in the sense that that it changes all the time. So at one point it was all about these these incredible manifestations. So I write about this German tourist named Willy Reichel who toured America at the turn of the uh, 20th century and uh like 1901 or something like that and he had These weird experiences where he saw uh, full manifestations of, of a cousin wearing the appropriate German uniform for the region and the group that he'd been a member of, speaking in the correct accent and knowledgeable about family history. And the medium was a guy who couldn't, could not barely speak English. He was almost illiterate. Oh. How do we even explain something like that? Either the writer was lying or something was going on. But then, a little bit later, it's not that anymore. So, you know, it begins back in the 1800s with just knocks and sounds. And yeah, yeah. You would, you would sit there and say, hey, is this, my, is this my Aunt Sadie? Knock once. If it is, you get a knock. Right, um, yeah, basically poltergeist uh, stuff. Yes, exactly, but communicating through it, yeah. and then that turned into direct voice mediumship. interestingly enough, often mediated by by supposedly indigenous spirits. very yeah. often they yeah. were the, the gatekeepers to the other world in these early days and and then it, it develops into something you know very different with these massive table tipping, kind of experiences and ectoplasmic manifestations. And and then it turns into something like Edgar Cayce, right? Where he's talking about past lives and Atlantis and and ways to live more healthy. And and then it turns into the experiment of the Unobstructed Universe books, which were very famous in the late 30s and early 40s and a tremendous story. Uh, I'm actually writing another book about them specifically, even though I write about them in this book, because they were just such an amazing trip. There was this husband and wife, um, his name was Stuart Edward White, and her name was Betty. She was the first Betty White. Mm-hmm. And they were very wealthy people. He was a very successful writer of frontier books. Many of his books were made into movies and they'd survived the Depression in style, living uh, in beautiful houses and going on yachts and all this, and uh, he was an outdoorsman, a friend of Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt said that uh, Stuart was the best shot that he'd ever seen, and he was somebody who was famous, for example, for uh, he broke his leg once when he was out on the trail camping with her and some friends, and he had to crawl all the way back to Camp, but on the way, he managed to shoot some game for dinner that night and retrieve it and grab <laughs> it along with him, right? So, a real, like, the old fashioned manly man kind of guy. And he, right. he had a, uh, even today, there's a grove of redwoods in California and a species of golden trout that are named after him. But their experiments together were something different than anything that had ever happened before because they had nothing to do with. Talking to dead relatives or finding out why you're sick or what your past life was. It was entirely an experiment in trying to explain the afterlife and this life and the meaning of life and how creation works and trying to prepare Betty to communicate from beyond. They didn't know that in the beginning. Hmm. But when she died, she came back in a way that, that even blew away people like Carl Jung and the editors of Who's Who. And uh, just to give you one example. Well, let,
0: let, let's stop there just for a moment because we got to take sure. a quick break. And we'll okay. be right back and we'll hear that story.
1: Okay, great. All
0: right, quick mid-show break here. Contact info and a recommendation. Uh, Contact info, everything can really be found at com, except maybe my snail mail address, because I keep forgetting to put it up there. And that is P.O. Box 444, Ovid, New York, 14521. Uh, If you have a uh, story or something you want to send for one of our listeners' story shows, it's stories at com. But uh, yeah, all our social media can be found linked at com. You can also become a patron. It's only $3. It's, only, it's always been only $3, and you get a ton of extra content, and it helps us out a lot. All right. Uh, as for recommendations, I'm going to go with one that uh, is somewhat well-known, I guess. Uh, from the same company that did the Black Tapes, they did one called, uh, which is Pacific Northwest Stories, they did a, did a podcast called Tanis. Now, the upside to Tannis is the vibe, the atmosphere, and everything else is fantastic. Uh, it's one of my favorite podcasts. There's no end. Um, I don't even know if they're doing another season. I feel like they kind of don't really know where to go with it. Nonetheless, it is probably well worth the listen just for the, you know, like I said, the atmosphere, the overall mystery to it. Uh, it's a It's a cool idea, and I hope they eventually figure out a direction and, and a way to end it that uh, didn't end like the black tapes. So, uh, yeah, Tannis is going to be my recommendation. There's like three or four seasons up, and I really I really loved that one. There hasn't been new episodes in a while. Like I said, I don't know if they're doing another season or not. They're not particularly communicative on any of their channels or anything, so it's hard to tell what's going on. But uh, that's T-A-N-I-S for anyone who's interested in checking that one out, I think. Anyone listening to this show would probably enjoy it, because it's very, very strange. All right, back to the show. You're listening to Where Did the Road Go? I'm here with uh, Mr. Ronnie Pontiac, and we're talking about your book, American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you started this, this story. I had to cut you off there, but uh, I, I want you to continue this because I'm not, I'm not that familiar with this.
1: Okay, yeah, it's very almost unknown at this point. That's a funny thing because they were so famous. But when I started to research, there was nothing on the Internet about them. Wow. I basically only found court records and, and very obscure bits of information, which were insightful ultimately, but hard to dig up. And I think part of the reason that they disappeared was because they didn't have kids. They didn't start any kind of a movement. They, they weren't into uh, being like teachers or, or leaders in any way. They, they often told people that every soul has to find their own way. But to give an example, they had done this, this really amazing work uh, about what the unobstructed is. And, and I'll give you a little bit about this to give context to the story I'm going to tell. So they said that we live in the obstructed universe when we're in bodies. When we're out of our bodies, we live in the unobstructed. These are not two different universes; they're the same universe, but the frequencies are different. The frequency of the unobstructed is much higher, and the frequency here in the obstructed is very dense and it obscures the vast consciousness of the soul. And so we forget ourselves when we're in our bodies and we live these claustrophobic kind of lives, uh, surrounded by all these these necessities that we have to deal with with on various levels and when we get to the unobstructed we're not it's not all that different the main difference is that we're essentially what she described as a molecule or or an atom of consciousness and this atom of consciousness that is truly us in the unobstructed can enter into any form can create forms can recreate somewhere that we lived in a past life that we really loved and can, can have almost unlimited creativity and experience of the universe because our consciousness can, can dilate to that extent. Uh. And, but we're in the body, we really, we can barely even sustain our consciousness. And so, one of the ideas they had when you ask, well, what's the meaning of life? They said that the meaning of life is, is to, um, to rise through various qualities of consciousness by, at each step, accumulating as much quantity of consciousness as that particular quality of consciousness can hold. So we start in very low life forms and we work our way up and they, they tell a story, for example, about how Somebody asked about dogs and pets in general, and they said, if if you have a pet that is individuated, you have a pet that practices willpower, that, that has a sense of its own identity, then that is an individual. That is an evolving, eternal individual. Yeah. And eventually, that individual will absorb all the, the, the consciousness that's possible. It'll be, let's say we have a cat, and that cat is going to be just going to make the utmost out of being a cat, right? It's going to be the smartest cat. And it's going to experience all the life it can. It reaches a point where it, it, it what it is cannot be contained in a cat anymore. Right. And so it graduates up to something that can contain that higher level of consciousness. And that's what we're doing as human beings. We're trying to accumulate as much consciousness as we can in order to continue to climb up this great ladder of, of quality of consciousness. So not,
0: how to get not, back not, to, not entirely different than a Buddhist idea of this.
1: No, not really. Um, Except of the, the, the individual being immortal. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now one of the stories told about them was, um, that they, they told, was after Betty, th- their books uh, happened around World War II, and they were a great source of solace to people who were losing relatives or facing tragic situations. And they sold, the book was never out of print when it went into print. It went through something like 16 printings in two years or something crazy. Wow. And they wrote about five or six, seven books, something like that. Um, and then they started getting these warnings from what they, they called themselves the invisibles, right? It wasn't spirits or, uh, disincarnate humans. They, they just called themselves the invisibles. And the invisibles said some things that were, in retrospect, clearly trying to warn them that something big was about to happen and it wasn't going to be very comfortable for them. And they thought that this was, uh, you know, going to be some dramatic new revelation of enlightenment but what really happened was Betty got got sick and so at first they thought well it must be that we're gonna heal this using spiritual means and that's going to be this big amazing accomplishment but that didn't happen Betty got sicker and sicker and as she did Stuart got more and more committed to her getting healthy even though she was fading and suffering terribly and so there was this moment where she was drifting in and out of a coma-like state, the doctor was there, it was at their house, and Stuart saw her lying in the bed so frail, and he, he had this terrible realization that he might be holding her here, that mm. she might be suffering unnecessarily just to stay with him because he couldn't handle losing her. So he went and he sat in a sofa chair in the next room and he said out loud, Betty, I understand now. And if you need to go, I want you to. I know I'll be with you and I'll be okay until then. So if it's time for you to go, please go. It's all right. And about a minute later, the doctor opened the door from the bedroom and told Stuart that she had passed. But wow. he said that the weirdest thing had happened, which was he said that Betty woke up and he said she smiled, and he, he said to him as a doctor, it was unbelievable that she could that she could smile, but she smiled, and she said to the doctor, It's okay, I had a talk with my boy, and I can leave now, and then she breathed her last and was gone. Wow now at that moment, Stuart felt he, he described something very unique but familiar to all of us. He said, you know, when you're in love with somebody or just somebody that you love deeply, it doesn't even have to be a marriage. And maybe you're both sitting in the same room some evening and there's fire going and you're both reading different books. And even though you're not looking at each other and you're not talking to each other, you are you feel the presence. Yeah. And he said that he was inundated with that feeling 10,000 times stronger than he'd ever felt it before. And it never left after that. He felt that this was Betty letting him know, I'm okay. Yeah. So he was he was okay with it because of that. And he started to travel around. This is right before Pearl Harbor happened, just a few months. He started to travel around to visit all their friends. Everybody wanted to uh, to have him come over so they could spoil him and try and comfort him. And he also didn't want to stay in the house where they had lived together. It seemed very empty. And she had this incredible green thumb. She grew this incredible garden of rare plants that they had collected from all over the world. And when Betty died, despite him bringing in all the experts that that he could get, all the plants died as if they didn't want to exist without Betty. And she also had an incredible way of communicating with animals. And... So he thought, well, I'm going to write about this. And I'll write about how this feeling that I have about her presence. And there was a couple whose nickname was Joan and Darby. There were a couple of successful business people who would written a famous book called um, Our Unseen Guest that had been a great source of solace to people during World War I. And they were uh, also a husband who was writing down the readings that his wife was producing. And they helped Betty and Stuart when they first started out, so they became good friends. And he was afraid to see them. Uh, he, he was afraid to talk to any medium for fear that they would channel Betty and that it would be a joke and that his faith in her continuance might be affected by that. So when he finally got up the courage to stay with Joan and Darby, he told them, I don't want any communications with the other side. And Joan said, well, why don't we do this? We won't talk to Betty, but we can talk to my spirit guide and just have a regular reading and and get you uh, maybe you know centered into where your life should be now a little better. And mm-hmm. he was okay with that, as long as she promised to leave Betty out of it, and Joan did. But the minute that Joan went into trance, Betty just barged in. <laughs> and the First thing she did was she called Stuart by a nickname that he had, which was Stute, which was something that was never spoken in front of anyone else, just between the two of them. The first thing she said was "stute," And then he said she spent two and a half hours telling him detail after detail after detail of their most intimate, private, married life that no one could possibly know without any mistake except one. And the mistake was something having to do with blue slippers. And he thought, wow, how weird. You know, everything was perfectly accurate, but what is this blue slippers thing? So he asked some people about it. No one knew what was going on. And then he he ran into the nurse who had taken care of Betty in the hospital near the end of her life, and he just asked her for the hell of it, um, what is the deal with the blue slippers? Have you ever heard of anything like that? And she said, oh, yes. And she she smiled and was kind of, giggling, and she said, you know, Betty asked you to to bring her some comfortable shoes, and you brought these fancy blue slippers that had high heels and and feathers on them, and we thought that was hilarious, and he had (laughs) forgotten it, and so later, when he talked to Betty through a medium, she said, yeah, I did that deliberately. I wanted to tell you something that I knew you had forgotten. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, amazing stuff. I could go on and on about them. There's way more. But Jung was so impressed that not only did he write a, uh, a an introduction to the German edition of their most important book, which he made a little, like, he kept his scientific facade there. He wasn't unreservedly uh, saying that this was for real, but he was saying it was certainly worth studying and and. Uh, He criticized some American aspects of it he thought were in there. But there's a letter that he wrote to a friend of his in which he said that he thought that Betty was an example of not just an archetype, but of the survival of a soul. And the uh, Who's Who uh, editors were so impressed by the book that Stewart wrote about this that they refused to give her a death date. And when they received complaints from people saying, well, but Elizabeth White is is dead. They said, read Stort's book and then come back. So this was hugely influential in the 1940s. He only survived her by a few years and then it just basically disappeared off the face of the earth. But this was a very different kind of spirituality. And then I knew somebody, uh, Reverend Edward A. Monroe, who was known as the Seer of the Sun Belt. He was a uh, half Cherokee who was uh, accepted as a shaman by the Taos Pueblo Indians and he had been an LAPD police sergeant his whole life, working in the mechanic. And when he was in his 70s and he was retired, he just, he was so bored. He didn't know what to do. He wanted to do something useful and he kept praying. And then he had these weird experiences where he kept driving to this one little shopping center. Like he'd black out basically and drive there and park in front of this chiropractor slash hypnotist's office. He thought he was losing his mind. And after it happened several times, he finally walked into the chiropractor's office and said, doc, I think I'm going crazy. I I keep blacking out and driving here. And the guy said, well, let me put you under and and we'll see. We'll hypnotize you and see what comes out. Well, Ed woke up about two hours later and this hypnotist was staring at him with big, huge eyes and had a huge stack of notes in front of him and said, that he had been talking to a spirit with a strong Scottish brogue for two hours that had told him amazing things about himself and had said that that Ed had been chosen for this special mission since he had asked for it and that he was <laughs> going to be doing a lot of medical mediumship and he was not interested uh, he thought that was terrifying he couldn't possibly do that and they told him yeah you're gonna do it and what's gonna happen is you're gonna see the phone numbers of the people that come to you before you hear from them and Mm. they will find you and uh, and you will have the answers for them so he thought it was nonsense until he started seeing phone numbers and then those phone numbers started calling him he didn't even he couldn't believe it you know and he he so he he tried it somebody told him that they were under in a desperate situation and he thought I am seeing the numbers you know I'll give it a try and they were very impressed and and actually he cured them they they did what he said it, it remained a source of, of low level anxiety off and on for Ed for the rest of his life you know because he was dealing with people coming to him with really severe conditions and and problems and he was giving them all sorts of advice when he was asleep, or somebody was, yeah. and and this particular activity was kept very much under wraps, and this spirit with a brogue that was talking through him explained that this was another experiment in spiritualism, and that this time around, they didn't want it to become famous. They wanted to see what the impact would be individually, so if this medium only hit uh people one on one basically and never became famous then how would that influence society how would how would maybe that would be a more efficient way of doing this Helping to eliminate some of the fraud and mm. helping to take away the glamour and the stress that came to famous mediums. Yeah. And so he lived a pretty quiet life and he did this stuff for years. And interestingly, many of his clients were retired Christian people in the Sun Belt.
0: Hmm. Well, we are... So, go ahead. I was going to say we're just about out of time. Oh, okay. But if you're down to stick around for a Patreon, we can talk a little more about this. Sure. Uh, so, I, I want want you to give out all your info and uh where people can get a hold of you the book uh obviously is and is on inner traditions so that one uh you can pretty much get anywhere and it's called yes. american metaphysical physical religion esoteric and mystical traditions of the new world uh and you are ronnie pontiac you're also in a band called lucid nation that's true
1: that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> yes
0: and we go way back
1: with that by the way
0: yes we do And uh, so tell people where people can find you online and and anything else you you have.
1: Sure. Um, I can be. Best best to reach me through Instagram, probably. Um, I usually tell people that if you're interested in the things that we do, Tamara and I, our books, our music, also the films that we've worked on, because we've, we've produced some documentary films that I think are pretty interesting. One about the Gits, the murdered lead singer Mia Zapata, a great band that, that were kind of nipped in the bud. And, yeah. uh, we... Tamara produced a a phenomenal film that was nominated for an Emmy. Uh, She was an associate producer of, uh, it's called uh, End of the Line, The Women of Standing Rock. And it's about the women who were the leaders of the Standing Rock protests. And uh, we have a, a few films in there that people might find interesting. But if you Google Ronnie Pontiac, you'll run into all that stuff that's probably the easiest way or whatever search engine you prefer. Okay. And uh, we do have a book that we wrote together coming out in August called The Magic of the Orphic Hymns. And then I have a book coming out about the Rosicrucians either at the end of this year or next year. Nice. And she's working on a book about her experiences uh, in Riot Girl and uh, hmm. living in Los Angeles and uh, her experiences with people like uh, Warhol Superstar Hollywood Lawn And She's just a wonderful writer. She, she, she brings things to life with her vivid prose uh, and always seems to find spiritual overtones to otherwise mundane topics Um, so there's lots of material to check out uh, online
0: all right well thank you so much for joining me we'll continue this in the patreon thank
1: you for having me
0: i want to give a big thank you here to everyone who supports this show by becoming a patreon and i want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging ten dollars or more billuminati Greg Ross, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, 36 Dingo, Matthew Sproul, Andrew Nichols, Christine, a blue 2nd Gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gayaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Anne Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy and Communicable, Chris, Chris Cicernos. Craig Parmenter, Diane B., Empty K., Eric Todd, History and Coffee, J., J. Otto Bullitt, Jack Huntington, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Mattingly, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linda, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, M.J. Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Ole Andre Olar, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Seed Person One, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Varosh Kay, Vincent Trewell, Will Gebhardt, Will Powell, Ren Collier, Annabelle Smith, Caroline Walker, TDT, Skunkworks, and Craig Sagastumi. Thank you all so very, very much for helping make this show possible. Of course, we barely scratched the surface of Ronnie's book. We go for another hour in a Patreon segment talking about stuff. And uh, yeah, it's uh, well worth looking into. If you found any of this interesting, check out the book. And if you want to become a patron, it's only three bucks. It's always been three bucks. Uh, and that's at uh, com. Just click on the big Patreon link, and you get extra content almost every week, sometimes more than once. Sometimes I throw some extra stuff in there. Uh, and I want to welcome uh, Lindsey Trebet uh, to being a patron again a very, for a very generous sponsorship-level patron. So thank you, Lindsey, as well as Obsidian Radio. I also want to give a shout-out to Diane B., who... Uh, dug up my uh, Amazon wish list, and uh, sent me a very awesome dash cam, which is replacing the one that I had that was dying. Sometimes you'll see the dash cam footage if you watch the YouTube videos. uh, I'll use them, especially on Wandering the Road Shows. And uh, the last time I went to see Tim on the way back, uh, the dash cam I had running... I mean, when I went through the mountains, it was some of the most beautiful stuff I've ever seen, and I was really happy I was going to be able to use that for the background of a video, except the dash cam didn't record it. Uh, It had reset the date because it had been off for so long, the battery just doesn't last on it, and uh, I hadn't really even thought about it because it was plugged into the car, but newer cars completely cut power. Normally, I use it in an older car that doesn't do that. And uh, so it kept recording the same three-minute segment over and over because what it does is it, it records in three-minute files, and it will overwrite the oldest file. So since it jumped back to, like, 2016 or whenever the thing the cam was uh, made, it just kept rewriting the same three minutes at the beginning of the file, and I got none of it. And I was really, really upset when uh, when I pulled over and checked it and was like, oh, I didn't get any of that because it reset the date. Um, so, yeah, I've been hoping to get a new one, put it on my wish list, and she was kind enough to pick it up and send it to me. So thank you for that, and it will, like I said, I am sure end up as video footage in the back of some of the Wandering the Road shows. All right, um, we're going to take you out pretty obviously with some Lucid Nation, Ronnie's band, that he's been in for a very long time. Uh, as uh, he and Tamra have both mentioned, uh, I'm, we're all pretty sure I'm the first person who ever played them on the radio So uh, we go back a long way. And uh, this is a song I really like from them called Food Chain. So if you like it, check them out. Lucid Nation. And I will see you next time.
1: I'll be an incubator. You'll ride downtown. You take it to the deepest, darkest underground. Cut right here close. Take you everywhere We'll never be separated. skin